The Rural Health Voice, Episode 71, Census Results. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What do the results of the 2020 census mean for rural communities? Hamilton Lombard, Estimates Program Manager from the Weldon Cooper Center at UVA, joined me to discuss how population loss is harmful for our rural communities. Welcome, Hamilton. It's great to be here. Um, I'm a big fan of podcasts. I've actually listened to your podcast in the past. Um, I'm really happy you were able to keep it going. There's not a lot of um, podcasts that really, you know, focus on policy in Virginia. We, we are in a niche world here. It's, it's interesting how many people find it from different directions. So I was looking at your background, and I think we need a sort of a set the tone. What is demography to start with? Well, I think a lot of people call it economics, a dismal science. I always think demography takes it another step in that direction. Uh, I mean, we're studying a lot of deaths, um, a lot of births, um, where people are moving. Um, it's important because it's used a lot for planning. It's, it's used a ton, particularly in Virginia, for budgeting. Uh, I think a good share, if not most, of the state budget is allocated based off of population numbers we produce or the Census Bureau produces. So it's in some ways basic, but the data quality needs to be very, very high. Sure. So if this county's got 100,000 people more than that county, the county with more people should, in theory, get more resources. It, you know, it, it's going to really depend, of course, on, on certain things. Um, if you have fewer people but the state demands the same things from you, the state might give you more money. Um, if you think about roads, for example, this, if some small counties don't have a whole lot of people but they have roads running through them, the state still needs to make sure those roads are in just as good condition. Absolutely. And how did you first become interested in demography? Oh, uh, you know, it, it's hard to say. I, I grew up um, I grew up over on the Bath Highland border. Um, one of the things that always struck me growing up out there was how much the population had changed. Um, you could walk around and see um, abandoned farm equipment, um, lots of abandoned homes. So you could tell things had changed there. And I think traveling around Virginia, particularly in high school, um, doing sports, and just seeing how different different parts of Virginia were. Some areas were exploding in growth, other areas were like Highland and Bath. Um, and I think also probably my family's background. Uh, my mom moved to the U.S. from Jamaica. Uh, both of my dad's parents moved to the U.S. from Spanish-speaking countries. So it, it just makes you look at the world maybe a little differently, um, really wonder about why some places are growing, why people are different in different places. So I think it sort of naturally drew me into that. Um, I was at the University of Virginia, had an opportunity to do an internship where I work now, and um, I've just been here ever since. I've really enjoyed it. Excellent. And what data sources do you study for your research? We have a couple um, key responsibilities where we need to put out population numbers the state's going to use for budget planning. Um, so we, we rely a lot on data that's drawn out of parts of Virginia. Um, we geocode births, we get death data from the Department of Health, um, we get fiscally responsible school enrollment for public schools, um, we look at local government building permits, we look at driver's license data, uh, we share some of this data with the Census Bureau, they share some data back. Um, but a lot of it's really relying on high quality administrative data from within Virginia. Um, we use that to try to estimate the population of Virginia each year. Um, we collect the number of people who are in jails, um, the number of people who are in college dorms, um, the number of um, 
double wide trailers and single wide trailers each year that um, the DMV permits. So a lot of raw data, but we're really trying to find high quality data that is consistent and comparable across 133 counties and cities in Virginia. And a lot of what's been in the news lately is, lately is the 2020 census has arrived. We have that information, sort of. Sort of, yeah. What do you feel are some of the key takeaways from the 2020 census? I don't want to be too negative um, about the 2020 census. I think that there were, we were worried about it even before the pandemic. Um, the Census Bureau has really been struggling with a couple of things. One is the just response rates to everything, any kind of survey have gone down over the years. I think the public seen this with uh, political opinion surveys asking who's going to get elected. They just seem to go wrong every time. And, and that goes back to lower response rates. Uh, the Census Bureau has really been struggling with that. They've tried to make some adapt 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 to that to a certain extent. Um, one was to try to ensure that people felt more comfortable, their answers wouldn't be revealed. Um, the way they were going to do that was a very fancy algorithm that distorted the data. So we were worried about that, really how usable any of the data would be um, from that. And then the census was supposed to be conducted on April 1st of 2020. The pandemic started a couple weeks before. Um, that really interfered with a lot of the census operation, but also where you count people. Um, People are supposed to be counted where they normally are. College students supposed to be counted at the university, uh, not back at their parents' homes. Uh, most weren't at the universities. So there are a lot of problems with the data. Um, I think, honestly, it's very questionable how usable the 2020 census data is. That's something we're really struggling to figure out, um, how much of that can be relied on or whether we need to try to find alternative data sources. Well, you mentioned, of course, the, the complications with COVID, uh, but the thing that I was concerned about was this is the first time that they had really rolled out the census as being something you did online. And for our rural communities, you know, there's no broadband at my house, and I'm sure I'm not the only one in rural Virginia. Do you think that's going to be a major consideration in how we interpret the data? It has. They, they did a lot of testing. Um, one of the things that I seems like they missed on or figuring was going to happen anyway was that you, there was still a pretty good response rate even via the internet. People found internet to fill it out or they requested a paper one, but with the internet option you did not need to complete the survey. It didn't force you to. So a lot of people simply would say how many people are in the household and that's all you constitutionally required to do um, and they sent it in. So the census essentially had to guess what the rest of people would have filled out, their age, their gender, their race or ethnicity. A lot of times it looks good, but we see some very weird things with the data. Um, this is clashing with the census trying to hide people's privacy. Uh, Williamsburg, I believe the share of the population identified as black doubled when we look at some of the college dorms. You can check that against administrative data. That's that's artificial. There's something going on with the, the algorithm. Um, I, I think the internet was a bigger factor. People didn't anticipate how it would change the, the way we, people responded. I, I think it didn't lower the response rate but I think it made all the characteristic data like age and race a lot less reliable. Is there information from the census you feel rural people should be particularly aware of or concerned about? I think that for now, the data that we're seeing from the 2020 census, it, it has to be looked at with a certain amount of caution. I don't think you can accept it as a fact by default. Um, there are just, there are a lot of weird things about 2020 even aside from operational problems like we talked about with the internet, uh, there, there was this idea to hide, hide people's privacy. The way that they did that was by moving people around the state. So if you had a small minority population, for example, maybe a small share of a county's population identified as black, the algorithm would move in artificially 
more people into that county who identified as black to hide the residents' responses. So then it can make it look like the whole locality's black population grew when it could have actually shrunk. Um, there's a lot of that going on. Um, if you're trying to get the population for, say, a small town in Virginia, it's really questionable how accurate it is. The one thing I can say, though, with the 2020 census that we do think is very good is the number of housing units seems to be um, very high quality. And that might be something localities can use. We're certainly hoping to use that uh, for our population estimates. But I, I would say, in general, the 2020 census, it should be used with a lot of caution. I'm hoping there's going to be some good estimates from the census coming out in 2021 that won't have the problems from 2020. Yeah, one concern that I've heard people talking about is that we think from the census data at this point that our rural communities continue to lose population, that more and more people from Virginia are leaving the rural communities and going to Northern Virginia, to, to Richmond, to other areas. Why does it matter that rural communities are losing population? We're already rural. What's the loss of a, a few hundred or a few thousand more people? Yeah, I, I, and I, I think I think a lot of people do feel the, the way you do. I often think about this, you know, growing up in Highland Bath Border, both those counties lost half their populations over the last century. I think if you'd asked somebody 100 years ago what they thought of that, they probably would have been concerned. I think, you know, you go there today, they're both very pleasant places, but it does make a lot of things harder. Um, I, I think from a very sort of high level, Virginia is a very top-down state. It pulls up a lot of money to the state level. It has lots of regulations that it expects every county and city to follow, and then allocates money accordingly. When you have some areas really grow, really growing, some areas really declining, um, counties and cities that are really different population sizes, and the big ones getting bigger, the small ones getting smaller, it makes it a lot harder to to do any sort of planning, any sort of funding, passing sort of regulation at the state level. So there's that. I think that's a problem by itself. I think the other part that's concerning is that there are a lot of rural counties that aren't really declining a whole lot. You know, you could look at the top line number and say it's really not that much of a concern. But you look at who in the county is declining, it's typically the younger adults. Um, it's usually the people in the workforce. Um, quite often, their older population is really growing, a lot of that from retirees moving in, but they're becoming really imbalanced. Um, you're running into labor shortages um, in any sort of industry. Um, their schools are struggling because there's not a lot of young adults having children, um, so they're, they're having, trying to figure out how to get by with fewer and fewer students. A lot of school divisions have consolidated really down to the point where it's not possible to keep going. Um, they're quite often down to one school, you know, for each level, um, but they still have all the requirements they have to meet. So there's a lot of, I think, there's a lot of problems you run into in budgeting at that point, trying to provide any sort of services. Um, the other big problem is just with the labor force in general. The fact that most of the decline, all the decline we're seeing in rural counties is really happening in the working age population. And at the summit on rural prosperity, you stated having large economic difference creates a larger economic incentive to move out of rural Virginia. Tell me more about that. What's, what's the, the incentive to move in that case? Yeah, I remember several years ago, um, August uh, Wallheimer, I think, had a, a nice book. He put out a little book called The Extremes of Virginia, and he, he made some of these points. And I had looked at um, one example was if you look at the median household income in Virginia and you compare it with other states, we have the largest difference within any state in the country of the highest income and the lowest income. You look at the difference between the two, that's bigger than you find in the other state. If you look at the next I think 32 examples, 
where there's a big the, the difference between two counties, they're all within Virginia. So we really have do have this sort of extreme economic difference between particularly northern Virginia and much of southern and western Virginia. I think where you really see this affect migration in Virginia and our population is that a good share, even in rural counties, of students who graduate high school, or even the ones who don't go on to college, if they go off to a place like UVA, Christopher Newport, at that point if they see classmates going to Richmond or North Virginia and they see what they're going to make or they're going to go back to Southwest Virginia, I, I think it's that much harder. Um, that difference, I, I, think it's, I think it's particularly driven by that, but also just the general economic difference. People see that. Um, we, we, the south, southern and western parts of Virginia have really not been as economically dynamic as even neighboring regions in Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina. Um, so I, th I think it's a combination of things. Yeah, a colleague of mine will tell you that the number one export from southwest Virginia isn't coal, it's 18 to 35-year-olds. Why do you think the younger generation is most likely to leave? I think, I think, you know, if you've got to the point where you're married and you have one spouse with a job in the area, that might keep you down. If you own a home, that might keep you down. But when you're younger and you don't have, you, you don't have as much time you down, uh, I, think that's, I think that's a big factor. I don't think that younger, younger South people in Southwest Virginia have, you know, love Southwest Virginia less, but um, they have fewer obligations there. I think that's a big factor. The younger population has shrunk, though, so much in the last couple of decades. Um, I don't know if that's still going to be their largest export because they really don't have that many more young adults to export. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about, you know, folks going to college and seeing what job opportunities are out there. And certainly there's more jobs in the urban areas and they pay more. One of the things that we've been trying to do is we encourage, especially healthcare providers, to relocate to and serve our rural communities is hey you you know you may not be making as much as you would be in say alexandria virginia but look at the difference in the cost of living do you do you think that's a valid factor to promote i, I think it definitely is I, I think that rural virginia in particular is is not done as good a job promoting all the advantages it has um, as even in neighboring states uh, but i think that's an issue just nationally even internationally um, People generally do like rural areas. You can look at almost any opinion poll and ask where they ask people, where do you live, where would you like to live? You find a lot more people live in big cities than say they'd like to live there. A lot fewer people live in rural areas. Um, but I think that people need to see how they can make that work. The cost of living is one thing. Um, the increase, particularly with people with college degrees where you have both spouses working, then both need to find a job in that place. It's harder in an area where you have 20,000 jobs versus an area where you have 2 million jobs. I, I think that's a factor. Um, I mentioned a bit in the presentation the growth in telecommuting, and I, I think that that is going to be a bigger factor in multiple ways. One is if a place is trying to recruit a health professional, but their spouse has a job in Northern Virginia, they, they don't think they can give up. If it can be done remotely, um, that makes a lot more people willing to consider relocating. Sure. You know, as I see the number of jobs, you know, more and more that list remote as their position location. You know, if you've got a good broadband connection, why not live someone somewhere where the housing prices is, is a half or less than it might be in a, a big city? Right, and I think that despite what some companies have said, most have not been able to adjust the salaries either when people move out. Um, that's been not, it hasn't been possible so far. So most of the time it seems like you can take your salary with you. Um, 
I, I'm actually be taking advantage of that the next year. Uh, my wife is doing a fellowship out in Iowa City, um, so I'm just going to continue doing my job out there for a year, and then I'm going to be back here. Um, and that's a flexibility I probably wouldn't have had just you know a couple years ago. And I, I think a lot more people have that. My hunch is that you're going to see uh, rural areas really benefit from that. There's some initial data we're seeing on housing sales and also uh, people changing the mailing address. It seems to support that. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see after the pandemic what it's like. But I, I, sus I suspect rural areas that were attracted to vacationers before the pandemic are going to be quite attractive after. And some of those areas may get more growth than they can handle. So as you studied population shifts and economic shifts, have you looked into what the implications are for health and health care in our rural communities? I think the biggest one that really jumps out is the age differential I mentioned, that you, you, we have so much older population in a lot of rural areas, you typically are going to have more health care requirements. At the same time, you have a shrinking workforce, so it's harder to find people who can provide health care services to them. I, I think that's one that really jumps out. Um, another one that also, I think, is the issue of just life expectancy and, and quality of life. Historically, people in rural areas lived longer and were healthier. Uh, it seems like, based off of the data we see nationally and in Virginia, that has changed the last few decades, that the longest life expectancy seems to be more in urban areas where you're closer to hospitals, um, rural areas where you're further from it, you don't have as long a life expectancy. I think, so that's another factor as well, I think. Well, and I think there's other things in terms of basic stuff like job safety. When you look at rural economies that are often based on jobs that are physically demanding, agriculture, logging, mining, those are all things that will absolutely take years off your life. Yeah, absolutely. I was um, recently doing some work for Hampton Roads, and you know, even Hampton Roads, you look at it economically, it doesn't look that different from Richmond, but it has a lot more um, just physically intensive jobs. You have a higher disability rate um, just across the board because people get injured. Um, I think there's also a culture I certainly grew up with in part of rural Virginia I was from where it's sort of a self-reliance, and that's great in a lot of ways, um, but that can also get you into trouble. And I, I can't say how many times I encountered that growing up with people getting pinned underneath tractors or trapped in situations where they really, you know, should have asked for help. Um, they were do so they're doing something physically intensive that people in a lot of urban areas might not be, and then you're on top of that, are really trying to do it on your own. Um, you also have, you know, of course, incredible growth in the number of people who live alone in rural areas. So they really are very cut off uh, in many ways if they do need help. And the other thing I think we need to consider about, you know, the rural aging population is when we say that the population is aging, that includes our healthcare providers. That includes our, our doctors and our nurses and our physical therapists and, and all those folks. Someday they will retire and then what? I think that's particularly concerning for rural areas because if you look at the, if you look at the share of doctors practicing today who grew up in a rural area, who might want to relocate there to work. Um, it's a lot higher than the number of people going to college right now from rural areas because the young population has shrunk so much. So I think you're increasingly running to the issue where most doctors aren't familiar with rural areas, they're not from the rural areas, um, so they don't even necessarily have the attraction. Um, I, I, it's, it's one of the arguments I think why rural areas really need to market themselves better um, because I think even 20 years ago there was a larger share of the U.S. population that 
if they hadn't grown up in a rural area their parents had, uh, and that shrinking is more and more people live in cities. People are more cut off from that. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to be a problem across the board, but def definitely in rural areas just because there there's so f much fewer people going out of there into college these days than just 20 years ago. So you mentioned that we need to market ourselves better. What do you think rural communities could do to make themselves more attractive to young adults? Well, you know, the state, of course, has been working on the broadband. Uh, I think that, I think 20 years ago, that would have been an edge. Now that's just basically like having electricity. Um, it's not really something to advertise. It's, it's just a given at this point. I, I think that, you know, the, you mentioned the cost of living is certainly a factor. I think just the quality of life is something that a lot of people don't seem to appreciate that it generally it is a lot better. Um, I think that in cities often you know you have lots of sort of consumer goods, lots of entertainment that people can market well. Um, I've often thought that for rural Virginia basically needs to sponsor some sort of somebody who's a little bit like a poet laureate, you know, who really kind of gets people to understand it and value it. Um, maybe even sponsor movies being made there, just something to get it across um, what makes rural Virginia so attractive. Uh, I've been pretty much all around the world, and uh, I, I think rural Virginia is about, is about as beautiful as it gets. I don't think most people think that or even have had the opportunity to discover that. Sure. You know, what comes to mind is I know a few years ago, um, the state of Iowa was trying to figure out how to bring people back home um, because so many of their folks you know, go to college and then they get jobs in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, and they had a campaign that was very successful and I thought very creative. They ran television ads in Chicago that compared traffic jam in Chicago versus traffic jam in Des Moines. And that was the yeah. sum total of the ad. And it worked brilliantly. And I think, you know, creative approaches like that can make a big difference. Uh, I think so. Um, one of the things I noticed in Charlottesville is not that urban, but I, I'm always just kind of blown away whenever I go back out over the mountain, how much cleaner the air is, how much better it smells. Um, it's a, just a massive difference. Um, Growing up, you could, it's, you know, the, the noise level, you could hear cars coming miles away, and honestly, so few cars went by, you usually could tell whose car it was, you know, just because there's, there's so few and they were so quiet. Um, th those are sorts of uh, qualities that I think a lot of people don't appreciate until they get out there, and it really takes them a while to realize that this is, this is really what's different, and this is, you know, it's fantastic. And you talk quite a bit about you know, how as the population declines, and especially the young adult population, and how that hurts the economy. But I'm wondering, what, what does that do to Virginia as a whole? What, what does it matter to urban Virginia if rural Virginia is struggling? I think the, the sad thing is that maybe it doesn't matter to them that much. Um, the state generally doesn't bail out a lot of rural areas in Virginia. Um, it has a formula it follows, and some people argue it favors rural areas. I don't know if it does it that much when you account for the resource extraction, et cetera, from rural areas. Um, I, I think it's it's a problem for I think it's a problem for rural areas. It's probably also a problem for a lot of the metro areas that serve them. You know, if I think of a place like Roanoke City or maybe Charlottesville, I wouldn't quite count them as rural, but they do serve rural areas, having a declining population there. It's also a problem for them. But I, I think it's a it's it's a problem across the board that Rural, rural areas are going to have to deal with, and some of that is probably, they, they certainly over time have got better at lobbying together. Historically, you go west of the Blue Ridge, you had very, very different values when you were lobbying in Richmond versus um, the east south side or even the, the Bay Area. But I think that, at least when you look at the demographics and the aging and the population loss, they do actually have a lot more in common with each other than they did 
just a few decades ago. And I think that's part of why you have more uh, more coalitions um, lobbying together. Um, and I think if somebody's re realizing that they're really, they have to do it themselves. The, um, most of the state's population lives in urban areas. Uh, most, of them, most of them have not been in the rural areas um, and they don't probably see why any of those problems are their problems. Mm -hmm. So with the population shifts, one of the things we know is that fewer and fewer of our General Assembly members serve rural areas because as, as we get a, a decrease in population, more of those seats go to more urban areas. How do rural advocates and rural General Assembly members talk to those folks and say, hey, you know, we're all in the same state together. We need to work on things as a whole rather than rural-urban. Well, one is I think if, if rural areas can show how it benefits urban areas, um, the other alternative is trying to find a way for rural areas to do to have more autonomy, to, to do what they want. Virginia, I, I think, is there's there's a term they use, Dillon's Rule, uh, for states where the, the state has general control over counties. And Virginia on the spectrum of Dillon's Rule is one of the most extreme where the states control anything a county can do. It, it, it might be just given that the massive differences, rural areas do need to lobby to just have more autonomy. Um, you know, I, I think of one example that's always sort of a, a point of contention is the state's composite index for funding schools. Um, the state has a very long list of requirements it expects from schools, standards of quality, and it'll fund a certain portion of that. But based off of the formula, you, you get some fairly unusual results. Fairfax County is the largest county in the state. Median household income, I think, is about 125000 The state um, expects them, I believe, to cover about 65% meeting their standards of quality. And then you get Highland County. It's the smallest county in the state. Median household income is under 50000 The state expects them to cover 80% of the requirements. Uh, this is a funding formula. There's a great idea behind it, uh, but when you look at results like that, th there's a problem, and I think we're increasingly seeing that. I don't know if there's a, really a way around that. You can tweak budgets, um, but it, it, they may really need to start rethinking how a lot of different things are done. I, I, I don't know. The alternative is, it sounds like, is urban areas putting more money into rural areas when they don't see what the benefit is. Well, one of my uh, mentors, when asked this question of, you know, wh why should we care about, you know, rural roads or rural health care or rural whatever, his answer is, you know, where do you think your timber comes from? Mm -hmm. Where do you think your food comes from? Where do you think your energy comes from? And I think there's a lot of truth in that of, you know, there's only so much that happens in urban America that doesn't somehow originate in rural America. It's true, and I've thought about that a lot the last couple of years with the growth in solar panels, you know, and seeing them taking up larger and larger shares. That's going to be in rural areas, and people in rural areas are going to have to look at that um, and deal with that. Um, people in urban areas will get the power from that. That's certainly a message that could be made um, a lot clearer why you should care. I, I agree with that. I haven't heard that message made uh, very well. I, I, I would say 70, 60, 70, maybe even 80 percent of uh, people in Virginia live in what I would call an urban area. Um, and I think most of them don't think of any of it that way. I think most of them, when they think about funding in rural areas, they think they're subsidizing rural areas, and they don't see that the part of the equation that you've mentioned. Absolutely. All right, so last question, the question I ask all my guests. If you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? I think I would work towards trying to 
get rid of some of these extremes we've talked about, or at least make them closer. Um, try to try to make it. I think the best way would be to try to make it so people in Southwest Virginia have more in common with people in Fairfax and vice versa. Um, and I, I think that the way to do that is probably is a whole combination of things we talked about. Um, the broadband, they are doing that. I think the state trying to allow more people to relocate. Uh, a lot of people who grew up in Southwest Virginia who are working, say, in Richmond for the state. A very easy solution is the state going over to system allowing state employees to work remotely, you know, by default, unless there's a good reason. Um, so I think one would be really pushing telecommuting to help get rid of those differences. And the other we talked about is, is just marketing. I, I think that um, that would help a lot of Southwest and Southside Virginia, if not the tourism industry, I think just keeping more residents and also attracting more residents like healthcare providers. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today. No, no. It was good talking with you. That's Hamilton Lombard with his plan to address rural disparities. For more discussion on rural inequities and how they can be addressed, save the date for the upcoming Virginia Public Health Association. It will be held March 26th, and yours truly will be the keynote speaker. Details on the full agenda and registration will be available soon. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.